What do you do when God doesn't leave us in the dark and God does speak and what he gives us is Hebrew love poetry? What are you supposed to do with that? I don't know what you expected when you came today to hear a talk on, well, from the Bible and therefore about Christianity and what you're going to get is 3,000 year old Hebrew love poetry. What I love about this book is that it is, inspi- is the, it is the inspired Word of God. It's in our Bibles. I love it. As I said last week, if you read through the whole of the Bible, in terms of love and romance, Genesis will tell you the origins of love. 1 Thessalonians 4 will give you the boundaries of sexual activity. Proverbs 5 through 7 will give you the stupidity of not respecting those. 1 Corinthians 7 will give you permission within marriage to explore another's body sexually. But nowhere else in the Bible do you get such a sustained treatment of romance and love than you do in the Song of Solomon's. By way of recap, last week I said you might like to think of the Song of Songs as the Bible's sealed section, but if you open your own Bible you'll find out that no one has sealed it. More likely it's the Bible's closed section because we don't know what to do with it. In fact, I've had that feedback over the last two weeks. What do you do with a book like this? How do you handle this kind of poetry? And so the song is left unsung, which is a pity because it is the song of songs, the best song to sing up until that point in history. Although what I find incredible is that when you go to the New Testament, when you read the story of Jesus Christ, you find what the New Testament calls the new song. The new song of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The new song that God loves you, that Christ died for you. And I think that supersedes this song. It's my personal take. The new song of the love of God shown in Jesus becomes really the song of songs, the song to end all songs. But we're spending two weeks in this book. It's a poem really that breaks open a door into the world of two lovers The idea is if you want to be inspired to love, if you want to anticipate marriage and know even what it feels like, you probably already know what it feels like, to even know a little of what it feels like to anticipate love and sexual desire, then read this story. It is a book in praise of love itself. But it's an ideal love in a realistic world and I'm really thankful for that because I think the new song, the song really to end all songs, is about God's love And his love truly is an ideal love in a realistic or fallen world. There's nowhere more obvious to find that out than in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to get some PowerPoint, is that right? And I'm going to stand right in front of it, or rather, to the right of it, or to the left. It's a strange book. This is what he says to her. You ready? Can you read that? That wasn't a very hearty yes. At least 20% of you can read it. (laughs) He says, How beautiful your sandaled feet. Isn't that interesting? He notices her shoes. (laughs) How little things have changed. Oh, Prince's daughter. Talks about her legs. Oh, did I come to EU and... Your graceful legs. 
are like jewels. The work of a craftsman's hands. Wow, he's talking about God. God crafted his lover's legs. Your navel, won't show you mine, it is an outie. Her navel is clearly an innie because it is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. If you don't know what that means, neither do I. (laughs) Your breasts. Am I going to find some joy here? Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Hespon. It looks deep into her eyes by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. (laughs) Try that one on the one you love. (laughs) Looking towards Damascus. Or, in the King James, your nose is as the Tower of Babylon which looketh towards Damascus. How beautiful you are. How pleasing, O love, with your delights. I've been trying to work out what the hashtag should be. Last week, some of you made some suggestions for what the Twitter has to be for EU today. Here are some options for you. You ready? You gave me these last week, or at least three of you did. Hashtag crazy love. I can see that. Hashtag in praise of love. That was my favourite one, I think. Hashtag love, sex and Yahweh. Why don't we put them all in one room? Song of Seximon. My hashtag would be hashtag Orkies. <laughs> I enjoy the hashtag of one friend. I could tell you who it was, but I won't for his own sake or her sake. But it was a, it, <laughs> it was a he. Future wives house. Future husbands in the house. And one of them was, I thought this tweet was great. We're at a public meeting and we are hashtag drowning in love. Thanks be to God, she said. He is so kind in giving us this book. I'm going to do three things today. I'm going to just recap last week very briefly and then I want to do two things. I want to ask two questions and then talk about the aspects of the language of desire and make a few conclusions. Is that right? You know where we're going? You happy about that? You sure? Okay, thank you. Um, Last week uh, we said this. The song has one refrain... Two lovers, three voices, four settings. The refrain is in chapter 2 verse 7, 3 verse 5 and 8 verse 4. I adjure you, I beg you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, until it so desires. In other words, let love take its natural course. Don't control or manipulate it. Especially, I think, don't let fear rule your choices. But love, sex and marriage, do not let fear rule your choice of partner. 
the older I get, the more I realise that um, people get to a point and they, they, they see someone, they know that person won't lead them to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, won't lead that person to love him more, but it's fear that ends up making the person rule the choice. Fear of all sorts of things, being one. Don't rush into sex before you are ready to covenant. Talk about that in a little while. Don't meddle really with God's plans. Relax. Do not try to push a square peg through a round hole. There are two lovers. There's the Shulamite woman, 6 verse 13, and a shepherd boy in chapter 1 verses 7 8. She says, Tell me, my love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. That's saying, where does he study? Tell me where. Oh, Wentworth. (laughs) The friends say, if you do not know most beautiful women, follow the tracks of sheep. Is this veterinary science? Maybe he's there. Um, At times, this shepherd boy, probably not Solomon, will argue about that. I'm with uh, Dr. Barry Webb from Moore College on this. At times, the shepherd boy is compared to Solomon both favourably and unfavourably because we know at the end of the book, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, that this Shulamite woman says, although Solomon might have his thousands of lovers, I have my one lover, is what she says. There are three voices, not just the man and the woman in the story, but also a chorus of friends. And if you've been to a wedding before, you know on one level about the chorus of friends you know this at university in particular, I think, you know, it's like, do I like him or not? You can talk to your friends who then say, well, I could talk to him or her or, you know what I mean? There's the friends in the story and they say things like, and I'm not sure if I've got a slide here, but I'll take a risk. They do not say that. <laughs> Get to that in a moment. They say things like, rejoice the light in you, we will praise your love more than wine. Three voices. And four settings, country and city. Two subheadings underneath. Cultivated country, love is innocent. Wild country, love is torrential. If you're writing notes, there's inside in the city where love is safe, outside where love is spread. And love is innocent and safe, as it's meant to be in the garden. Well, it's meant to be in the garden, but in this fallen world, we know it's torrential and threatened. Which why? Which is why at the climax at the end of the Song of Songs, she seeks fidelity. So does he, but we don't hear from his point of view. She seeks fidelity. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your arm. Last week we looked at the settings of love and broke open from there the idea that love, we want it to be good, but it's elusive. And we went to the cross to talk about the redemption plans that God had. We want to talk about the language of love. It's hard to know what to do with a book like this. You don't go through it sequentially. Um, that could be fine, eight weeks, go through each chapter, but the book doesn't lend itself like that. So really, I think looking at the settings of love allows us to go over the whole book and the language of love, which is also, by the way, it's so important. There, there isn't, there's language in the book, not sex. That's what's interesting, isn't it? It's language in the book that counts rather than sexual activity. And so any treatment of the book of Song of Songs without looking at the language of love is an ordinary treatment. Questions. What would turn an ordinary shepherd boy into effectively a prince? That's my first question. My second question is, what would make this dark woman, I'll show you in a moment, see herself as lovely? 
what turns the ordinary shepherd boy he's described as a prince and what makes this dark woman and I'll tell you dark in a moment I know that sounds she calls herself dark I'll come to that in a moment (laughs) and yet she sees herself as lovely hey looking in the mirror is probably one of the most powerful things that you do each day and you don't even recognise its power the mirror is incredible you know I don't know whether to think or cursed because of mirrors. We can actually truly get an understanding of what we look like as opposed to ancient times. At the same time, now we get a look at what we really look like and we can see everything in the mirror. Of course, when you look in the mirror, you end up in that moment with your eyes being the only judge of who you are and what you look like. That's pretty powerful, don't you think? Yeah, part of me wants to smash up mirrors around the home, you know? how much they have um, damaged in some way, I think, our view of ourselves. If you look in the mirror, it's so easy to do one of two things. Either to potentially despair, I don't know how you feel, potentially despair, is this the way I look? Especially in comparison, in your mum or somebody else in that moment. Or, secondly, to be curved in on self. You always be looking in the mirror. You always catch your self in any reflection that you see. Well, this man could look in the story, in the song of the story, could look in the mirror and say, I'm just a shepherd boy. But, in this story, this humble shepherd boy is described in kingly terms. Right? He's a prince, really. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 12. In chapter 3, verse 1 and following, she has a dream, really, about her wedding day to this shepherd boy. He describes it like a Solomon's wedding. Like a royal wedding. Barry Webb, in his commentary, said, The lover is a male shepherd boy who is so idealised that he scarcely seems to touch the ground. Some things to say about that, but it's worth noting. Secondly, what makes this dark woman see herself as lovely? We know more about the woman than the man. She could look in the mirror and she could say, I'm not pretty. Let me show you how I know that. She looks at her friends and she says, Don't gaze on me. Right? Stop looking at me. In your life, I wish you would stop looking at me because I'm nervous about how you feel about me. She says, dark am I, yet lovely. Isn't that interesting? Dark I, am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tent of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Don't stare at me. Stop looking at me because I am dark. How is she dark? Because she's darkened by the sun. How does she stand in the sun for so long. My mother's sons, my brothers were angry with me and they'd made me take care of the vineyards, right? She was a, in the farm, she took care of the vineyards, yet my own vineyard I have neglected. You see it? It's quite remarkable, isn't it? That is, she looks in the mirror and she says, I'm not like the other daughters of Jerusalem with their vain and pampered lives and their soft peach complexions. My brothers forced me to do a man's job and it gave me, effectively, this floor. I am no supermodel. Normal compared to the other women in Jerusalem. Now, when I was growing up in the 80s, yes, a grand era, everyone wanted the tan. It was interesting. Tans were it. Now it's like the evil, evil, evil. I'm really pleased about that because I have children who aren't going to look like grandparents 50. But when I was a kid, it was just basically get out there in the sun. 
but back then, it's where I think Australia's heading now, which is fairer complexions are better than tanned ones. And she's saying here, I'm tanned, I've not been able to take care of myself. And yet she says, what did she say? What did she say? She says, I'm lovely. So what could turn an ordinary shepherd boy into a prince or this woman see herself as lovely? You know what the answer is? from another person that can make these two people feel special. It's not the mirror that gives them their self-identity in that moment, but the words of somebody who loves them from a better place than vanity. What's that line from that old song? Do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. Not by looking in the mirror with some subjective idea about what beauty and worth is like, but they see themselves this way because they are around a wise person who shows and expresses love in their words, even beyond the ordinary in the story. And by being a person who knows how to help someone to feel special, I'm going to talk about God in a little while, so this applies across singles, engaged, married or used to be married. This song gives us a look into a pair of lovers, a bride and a groom. By the way, not a couple going out, uh, but there are implications here for the not married and uh, the yet to be married. Okay, so that's the first thing, what those two things are. Secondly, then, I want to talk about then, about language and in particular one aspect of the language of desire. As was read to you, by the way, and if you read it during the week, did you listen as the words were poured out? The couple go out of their way uh, to speak about each other in beautiful terms. They praise each other, they delight in each other, they affirm the words of each other. Their love is full of mutual praise and that comes out in their extravagant language. Please read it. Can I show you a little more? Is that alright? Can I show you from the Bible? Listen to the shepherd boy speak about his girl. By the way, Australian men... Not good at language. Not good at expression. Got an application for you at the end. Here is what he says. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are uh, behind your veils are doves. Right? She's got her hair just behind her eyes. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Wavy brown hair. Black. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Try that one. <laughs> Coming up from the washing. Of course, it's ancient when you don't have fluoride in the water and she's saying, wow, your teeth are whiter. Yeah, she might be dark, but wow. She might be tan, but wow, you've got great teeth. <laughs> Each one has its twin, not one of them is missing, right? You can see the ancient world that, wow, you shouldn't smile, right? Yeah. Ah. All perfectly in a row. Thank God if you had braces when you were 15, it didn't feel good at the time. Verse 3, your lips, he notices the colour of her lips, are like scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like, she stands tall, built with elegance. 
And on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Wow, what's grand language. Your two breasts. Are like two horns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Is that true? No. She told you about her flaw. There's no flaw in you. You've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. That's a good thing. <laughs> he says, you are a locked, a garden locked up, sister, my bride. This is praise. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Now you see that last verse, how countercultural that feels in Western sexually liberal culture. Interesting, isn't it? These are his words. By the way, it's not prescriptive. You don't have to say this to your boy or your girl. But they are the private words of one shepherd to a very tanned, to a flawed woman. Having a nature of the praise, every part of her body is exquisitely beautiful to him and his eyes gaze all over her body without, you know, just her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her mouth, her cheek, neck, breasts. She's flawless in her eyes. What makes this flawed woman lovely? It's not the other women, Right? Not even herself, as she looks in the mirror, but the word praise from another which enables her to stand up in a world of vanity and gives her confidence. Here's what she says to him, right? This ordinary shepherd boy. The friends ask, they say, How beautiful is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you charge a show, right? Well, they're saying, Come on, he's just like one in a million, right? <laughs> and she's got something to say. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. He's my only one. His head is pure as gold. His hair is wavy and black as a rabbit. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. It's beautiful, isn't it? His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like the lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set in topaz. I don't know why I just did that then. My arms are not like that. <laughs> Chicken arms. His body, she says, is polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. You don't know what that is? Neither do I. His legs, you don't have to know. His legs are like pillars of marble Faces of pure gold. He stands strong. It's not, um, he's pursuing strength for her sake, right? His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice, as he says, his mouth, sweetness itself, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my 
friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Now, no man thinking, you know, think, lovely, but then you get called lovely and you're like, okay, I'll handle that. <laughs> Why is he special, right? Because he is radiant and radiant Only one. By the way, unlike the zigzag gaze, a course of the male gaze here, her gaze runs straight down. Head, hair, cheeks, arms, body, legs. And I think it's saying she's looking for strength from him, that he stands strong. This is the language here in the book. Now, what does all this say? I've got three things, five things to say. Is that all right? Strange application. Am I doing okay? Is all right? You like half with me? Yeah, how can you not be with a love box? You know, I mean, it's just okay. Here we go. Five things. Number one, I think I think as I read this book that marriage is the context for this kind this kind of language. Um, he calls her my sister, my bride. Right? It's a strong anticipated in the story. It's not just my girlfriend at this moment. Chapter 4, verses 8, 9, 10, 11, in case you didn't get it, 12. My bride. In other words, committed to her. And he says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Could say the same for him too. I don't think that's meant to be a gender thing. I think the idea is that she's kept herself a moment later. I know how odd that sounds in our culture. I really do. But that's what's being said there in the Scriptures. And it's a good reason, right? And the good reason is that they desire the other for themselves wholly and exclusively. And that can only happen if you have one person for life. Wholly and exclusively, as wonderful as that is, this is the ideal being set up here. I know it's not an ideal for many. I know it's not an ideal probably for many in this room. That's what's going on in the Scriptures. And I think this comes not out of conservatism, but out of conviction. That the Scriptures are correct when they say a man leaves his father and his mother, becomes joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And Jesus then says, two of what God has joined together, let no one separate. Or in the old language, let no one put asunder. I, I want the strength of the old words. When I got married... Um, the vows have as long as we both shall live. And I said to my wife, can we change that until, until death do us part? I want the word death mentioned at my wedding. Because I want strength in it. In the story of Song of Songs, it receives a public consummation of sorts in chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, when she says, set me as a seal upon your heart, upon your arm, tattoo me there, I mar- I, my church is one of those beautiful, in the city, it's one of those beautiful wedding kind of churches. And I married a woman there who already had children. She talked about her mistakes and she, um, she was in pain about all that. And I talked to her, assured her of the love and the forgiveness of God and all that kind of stuff. Then she took the arms of her fiancé to get married. And I looked down for the first time and I saw a tattoo name here. It said, Jeff. But he was not Jeff who was married. Interesting, isn't it? Application, don't tattoo. Do not do it. <laughs> the application, of course, is that she wants him for herself. Holy and exclusively because 
love as strong as death, its jealousy as unyielding as the grave. You know what we need? We need strong marriages in our world and this is your gift to give as believers in Jesus Christ to our world. Not just intense goings out. But I think when people go out they need to actually relax a little more about the words and certainly about their sexual activity. Even social researchers say this, but Tina Arndt said all the research points to long-term relationships, particularly marital ones, as providing the most satisfying and the most frequent sex. Yes, it's true, she says. I can't verify this, I'm not in bedrooms. It's true, she says, married people not only do it better, they do it more often. And I wonder whether Song of Songs is something that married couples, married couples need to read on their beds rather than couples who are going out. This is not a command. You might have already done it with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But what a gesture of discipline it would be to have this kind of language and intimacy reserved for marriage and not for you who are simply dating. And I think, by the way, single or married, not married, let's protect our friends' marriages. Um, Let's protect them. Let's love their marriages. Secondly, one minute apiece in application. You ready? Secondly, do not awaken love so desires, don't rush into it, don't push it too fast. We have a gift to offer our society which doesn't look closely at order anymore. Order is kind of what goes out of kilter here. The order of a person of faith, a person who reads the Bible is you meet someone, you date publicly. There's a word to write down. To date publicly, not privately. The reason you date publicly is that you're seeking advice from family and friends and abstaining during that process from... Uh, inappropriate sexual activity, then you publicly marry, set me upon your arm, then you move in and commit yourself sexually and emotionally. God might even give you kids. It's a terrific order and there's those quotes on your outlines from Christopher Ashton and Stanley Howe, which I think are terrific. Um, Stanley Howe, second quote there, we should not trust our declarations of love unless we are willing to commit ourselves area where we are more like self-deception than in those contexts where love is mixed with sexual desire. Please ask chat about that afterwards. I just want to declare it out there as something here. I think is here in the song, certainly in, as it's read against the whole of Scripture. Third, to those of you who are married, I'm going to take there a few, go and do likewise. More College, a lecturer said, let there be more hugging and kissing at More College. Have <laughs> you heard that at a Bible college? <laughs> third, third, we need to learn to express ourselves better, men and women, men and women. <laughs> let there be more words of affection, more noticing and less fear in what we say, more learning to say things in expressive ways. I run a marriage course like lots of people who marry couples. It's called Prepare. I answer a lot of questions. And one of the questions is, my partner makes comments that put me down. Something like 75% of people agree to that. Okay? So, you know, we're Christians. Let's do something different. One way singles can do this, as well as marriage, is to actually learn to express our love for Jesus and for God with words. Please write down Psalm 63. Say it every morning to yourself until you can learn to speak like David does to God. He says to God, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Right? Learn really to speak to God because I think that's terrific ground because with God we're in joy territory. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if in learning to express our love for God we started to learn how to speak to each other? As Oswald Chambers once said, the Psalms teach you how to pray, Proverbs teach you how to live, Ecclesiastes teaches you how to enjoy, I like that one, Job teaches you how to suffer, but the Song of Tongs teaches you how to love, and they even teach you how to speak love. But I think, wow, on God, I think he wants you to practice on him. Tell him to love him. Tell him why you love him. Enumerate the reasons. Read the Psalms. Last, fifth, married, singles, everybody. We need to be changed, I think, not by the perhaps fleeting extravagant words of another, but likes on Facebook, but like does not, pressing like does not constitute expressing words. We need to be changed by the extravagant words of God. Extravagant word of God, which does not change like the shifting shadows. See, it's the extravagant word of God, or words of God, really, that need to change us. Because God loves you, and His love for you is not fleeting. Right? You don't no longer have to look in the mirror to get a self-understanding. You don't have to be self-referential. Instead, you can look to God, look to Jesus, look to His death on the cross to determine who you are, how you feel about yourself. Because it's fundamental the way we're created that if I'm loved by another, if I'm divinely loved, married, single, previously married, or been in a relationship that you kind of regret, you've asked for forgiveness for and you've received it fully because God loves you, right? If you're loved, you can move forward and you can face anything. Because God's extravagant word says to you, He loves you despite your flaws. This woman says, Dark, yet lovely am I. We could say, Sinful, yet loved am I. And that means we can start talking to people in different ways, especially those who belong to Christ. No longer the language of control cynicism or rage, but rather we can speak to each other with brotherly or sisterly love and we can learn it from God. We can keep the passion alive. And I mean that in a, um, a platonic way. We can start speaking to each other with encouragement and joy because if we can't praise generally now, we will not praise But the Apostle Paul finishes, or says, I'm going to finish with these words, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, we have spoken freely to you. This is not romance, but it's what you can do for each other. We have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, and we've opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but he says, you're withholding your affection from us. As a fair exchange, he says, I speak to you as children, open wide your hearts also. Let's pray. Father, this book is extravagant and its words and its phrase teach us to do the same first to you for you've loved us, told us that we are loved. Second to each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. But Father, if uh, the gift is given to us of a long-term marital relationship, give us 
the ability to speak better than we currently do. Give us this grace, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.